All right, now we're ready to start our second part of Genesis 4, verses 16 to 26. 16. Genesis 4, 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Erod, and to Erod was, uh, became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech, and Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah. And Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. And Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For, she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Verses 16 to 24 describe for us what happens among the descendants of Cain. We have several generations of Cain's descendants mentioned here. Firstly, where Cain goes to dwell. He went out from the presence of the Lord. Wherever it was that God spoke to him, and this would have been around the, the area of Eden or in the area of Eden, outside of the garden, of course, because they were all expelled. Adam and Eve, they were expelled, and no one was able to live in the garden. But from the presence of the Lord, where they had lived, he settled in the land of Nod. And this land perhaps receives its name. It means wandering. Nod means wandering. And it perhaps received its name because that's where Cain wandered. He lived there as a wanderer. Verse 17. And Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived. Here, everyone always wonders who was Cain's wife. And even in the previous passage, who would it be when it says... It will come about that whoever finds me will kill me, verse 14. Who would it have been, and who did Cain marry? Who was Cain's wife? Cain's wife would have been his sister, most likely. If not sister, then perhaps his niece from one of the brothers, like that. But it would have been somebody close to Adam and Eve in that family. Why do we say that? Because in the Bible, both in Genesis and throughout the Bible... There is no room for any other human that was created and lived apart from Adam and Eve as our first parents. There is no room for that whatsoever. And even there is no room to believe that during the time of Adam and Eve, before the time of Adam and Eve, and after the time of Adam and Eve, that there were any creatures known as Neanderthals, cavemen, apemen, hominids, Nothing like that existed. That is partially human, having some capabilities and some beastly and ape-like characteristics. There is no amalgamation like that that is evidence in the Bible. It's not in the Bible and it is not even in history outside of the Bible. 
You cannot find that. There are speculations of, of people that say that those kinds of people existed before Adam and Eve, so on, but that's not true. It's not founded in the Bible. In the Bible, Cain's wife initially would have been Eve. A few cross-references that will support this are found in Genesis chapter 5, verse 4. Genesis 5, 4. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. He had other sons and daughters. This is said of the patriarchs in this chapter, for most of them, that they had other sons and daughters, which means Adam and Eve had many children. Adam lived to be 930 years old. He had many children. We don't know when his potency and her fertility, Eve's fertility, when that ended, uh, but we do know that they would have had other children. It says so right here, other sons and daughters, which means we know for sure they had Abel, they had Cain, and Seth, that's three, and then it says other sons and daughters, in the plural for both of them, so they had at least two daughters and at least two more sons, correct? At least, but likely they had many more than that for that long time that they lived. And that's one place to go. Then, at the time of the flood, who is left on the earth? At the time of the flood, Genesis 7, 7, it says, Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Genesis 7, verse 13, On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. There we have eight persons. Then chapter 8, Genesis chapter 8 and verse 16. Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Verse 18. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Only they survived the flood. It was a worldwide global flood that destroyed all the other people on the earth. This, this is why it says in chapter 9, verse 19. 9, 19. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. From these the whole earth was populated. Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, Japheth, the sons of Noah, and the sons were and sons were born to them after the flood, who are listed, and then their descendants are also listed throughout chapter ten. Then at the end of chapter ten, ten thirty two, it says, These are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies by their nations, and out of these the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. The nations of the earth were separated from them after the flood. There's no other creatures that are humans that exist after the flood except them and then the descendants of Noah and his family. That's why it says in Acts 17.26, Acts 17.26, mind you, Paul is before the Athenians, and so he's telling a group of foreigners, the Greeks, about their existence and origin. And he says, 1726, And he made from one, God made from one, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. He made all the nations from one. 
That means there is no room whatsoever for anyone else. Then the theological significance of it. There is the moral significance that we all have one father, one head, from Adam and Eve to Noah and his family. We all come through that way. So that solidarity and our human nature, our image of God, we have inherited from them. That is significant in terms of our ethics and morality. But in terms of our salvation and sin, this is also important. And that is because of Romans 5, 12 to 21, that compares all of us as dead and lost and under condemnation in Adam, but also in Christ. If we are in Christ, we are alive in Him. This is reiterated in a nutshell in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. For by a man came death, so also by a man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. All made alive. Now, one may argue and say, well, is this not immoral? Is this not incestuous? Is this not wrong? Is this not against the law? Well, we do know in the law of Moses, Leviticus 18 and 20, that certain close relationships were forbidden for marriage. We do know that, but not at this point. And God did not ordain it at this point because of the necessity of us all being from one head, from Adam through Noah and family, like that. The necessity of that so that we're all human by virtue of that fact, historical fact. That's one. And number two, on the condition or the relationship of our sin and our need of redemption. We are all lost sinners in Adam, but we can be saved and will be saved in Christ if we have faith in Him. That's why it's so important. In that reason, for that reason, that's why God established it from the very beginning, just like that. Um, also, since we're talking and thinking of exceptions, remember that God commanded Abraham to put Isaac on the altar? And he didn't tell Abraham that he was going to spare Isaac. He commanded him to put him on the altar. Well, human sacrifice otherwise is forbidden by God, is it not? He, in fact, he says that it never entered his mind. Like the pagans do when they worship idols, they offer their sons and their daughters as children on the altar. And God said, I didn't ordain that. I didn't appoint that. It never came to my mind to do that. I never commanded you to do that. But God made an exception with Abraham. Why? Because he wanted to do it for a spiritual reason. Right. To signify the potential death of Isaac that way and to signify it or to show as a shadow that Christ would fulfill. Isaac would be a type of Christ, right. a shadow of Christ. That's why he, he commanded that. Even though he never slayed him, at least he gave the command. So the command itself could have been considered a sin. Did God sin by commanding Abraham? No, he didn't. Because God is God and he can do whatever he wants according to his will. These kinds of exceptions are there throughout the Bible. And they are there for a very important reason. Okay? So that's what happened with Cain. He married his, his sister or someone very close like his sister. Furthermore, verse 17 she gave birth to Enoch. 
This Enoch is not the same Enoch of Genesis 5, 21 to 24. Genesis 5, 21 to 24, he is the son of Jared. And that ancestry goes from Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, to Enoch. And then Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. So that Enoch is a different Enoch. He has a different father. This one in 17 is the son of Cain. And he builds a city and names the city Enoch. Cain builds a city and names it after his son Enoch. This is one of the first, the, the first indication, written indications, that cities and places are named after people. Right. Because the people want their own name and reputation and whatever is associated with them to remain on right. in the earth for successive generations. Why do they do that? Why are monuments built and people's name placed on them? Because of human pride. Because of pride. We see that here. Then we have these descendants listed from, in verse 18, from Enoch to Lamech. We don't know and hear anything further of these descendants of Cain. But then in the time of Lamech, Lamech took to himself two wives. He, being a part of the reprobate line, the wicked, unbelieving line of Cain, he takes two wives and practices polygamy this way. Their names, Adah and Zillah. In the case of Adah, she gives birth to Jabal, the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And his brother, brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. And then Zillah, she has Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. We see here, among these descendants, the various skills and occupations they have. This is evidence of God's common grace, where He gives people skills, He gives people abilities, even though they don't know Him, even though there is no spiritual connection in their life to the abilities that they have. This is evidence here in the lineage of Cain, a reprobate, wicked line, and yet God has gifted them with the ability to sustain themselves with these skills and occupations whereby they can have a livelihood and they can have the ability to teach others. They have these skills that many people do not. Now, this is evidence of, like I said, common grace. Let's confirm this notion of common grace from Isaiah. Isaiah 28, Isaiah 28, 23. 28:23. The reason Isaiah mentions it is to show how marvelous and great God is that he's able to do these things and people respond and obey accordingly, but how is it that people with spiritual insight who are given and delivered the spiritual insight that they don't obey what they hear? Okay, that's why this is here. Isaiah 28:23. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my words. Does the farmer plow continually to plant seed? Does he continually turn and harrow the ground? Does he not level its surface and so dill and scatter cumin and plant wheat and rows, barley in its place and rye within its area? For his God instructs and teaches him properly. His God means God as creator, teaches him 
properly. For dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is the cartwheel driven over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a club. Grain for bread is crushed. Indeed, he does not continue to thresh it forever because the wheel of his cart and his horses eventually damage it. He does not thresh it longer. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. He makes his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. God grants to people generally, even unbelieving people, pagan people, idolatrous people, people of other religions, to have these kinds of abilities. And somehow it is natural and innate within them. Some of their parents and others, they notice them, and they guide their children along those paths so that they can have a successful occupation and career along those paths. That's what happens. But the parents weren't the ones who uh, put those things in the child. It was God who put those innate abilities in the child. As he says there about the farmer. The farmer knows how to handle things. Another is in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, which says, The king's heart is like channels of water, in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. God turns, moves, directs the heart of kings however he wants to do whatever God wants the king to do. And many times God grants wisdom to the king to behave righteously, to seek for peace in his country, to help his inhabitants, to help his domain, the people in his domain, to have prosperity, to have good things. The king directs and does those things for the benefit of the other people. That does not necessarily mean that the king knows God. But God gives the king this common grace, these benefits, the ability, the wisdom to do what's right. And even, we see an example, many examples, but one example is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar conquered the previous empire, right? He conquered the previous empire, the Assyrians. He also conquered Judah. He enslaved many of the Judeans, took them away from their native land into exile, into Babylonia. Daniel is one of them, right? Daniel the prophet. Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Daniel interpreted the dream. And then verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said... Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Remember, and you see there, notice that he is boasting in his own abilities. He's not giving the glory to God, realizing that all of this came by God. We'll see in a moment. God will remind him. Verse 31. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. God bestows the dominion, the rulership over mankind to whomever he wishes, like Proverbs 21.1. Yet Nebuchadnezzar was an unbeliever. He was not a believer. And God granted Nebuchadnezzar this mighty power, miraculous power to conquer foreign territories, vast uh, swaths of land throughout the Middle East. He gave that power to Nebuchadnezzar. 
But Nebuchadnezzar did not know God. These are evidences of God's grace, common grace. We also know from Matthew 5.45, God causes his reign to fall and his son to rise on the just and the unjust. Matthew 5.45, God gives these benefits in many ways to unbelievers. So the lesson is, because he does that, it does not mean that because they have God's favor in those ways, that they have the favor of God for their salvation. Because an idolater is an excellent mathematician does not mean that because he's an excellent mathematician, he's got a brilliant brain for mathematics, that necessarily God will make sure he gets to heaven because he uses his math skills properly. People think that. People think that because he uses it to benefit many children, many successive generations, he publishes books, he lectures on mathematics, whatever the field, they think, oh, he must be a good man, and by his good works, even though he's a part of a foreign, pagan, false religion, he'll be just fine in the sight of God, he'll make it to heaven. People think that way. We should not mistake common grace for salvation. It has nothing to do with salvation. In fact, those who have this temporary and superficial grace, like Cain, and those who have common grace, they will have punishment on the day of judgment because they would not acknowledge their creator. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Romans 1 teaches us that. Romans 1, 20 to 23. But because by creation they should know there is this mighty creator that they should worship and obey. We should also note from this passage in Genesis 4, 4, 16 to 22, that the paradigm that we have been fed in our schooling at various levels is a paradigm of evolution. We have been taught that in ancient times, man was backward and primitive (coughs) and brutish. That's the way we have been taught, that man in many centuries before, especially millennia before, they were very benighted creatures. They were literally cavemen who only knew to moan and to grunt, to, to find their way here and there and to communicate with their spouses. That that's the way language first started. No. No. Absolutely false. We see here, even with Cain, in the wicked line of Cain, God gifted them with these abilities. Cain built a city. How many of us have built a city? Right? He built a city. Or even if you take it to be a, a, a town or something that is very basic and rudimentary, still, how many of us have built a town? and designed a town. No, we haven't. How many of us know how to properly take care of livestock? There are some, but a vast majority of us don't know how to do that. How many of us uh, know how to play the lyre and the pipe? Very few of us know how to play musical instruments, and even fewer of us know how to make those musical instruments. Yet they made them. And also, how many of us know how to forge all kinds of implements of bronze and iron. We don't even know 
how to hew it, how, how to go and find it in the quarries. We don't even know where to get it. Many of us, let alone how to form it and change it and make it into a useful object for our use, right? We don't know how to do those things. Many of us, there are a few, but just because we are in a later generation does not mean we are in an evolutionary superior generation. Amen. That's not true. It's not true in physical ways, and it's not true in spiritual ways. We'll see spiritual when we reach verse 26. But in these ways, it's not true. Okay? Also, outside of the Bible, you have heard of the ancient Sumerian civilization. The Sumerian civilization. The old Assyrian civilizations. And old Babylonian civilizations. The Egyptian civilizations. The Chinese civilizations. The Indus Valley civilizations, right? You've heard of all of these civilizations, which date to, depending on the scholarship, at least to about 22 or 2300 BC, if not even farther back. BC, 2300 BC. The pyramids of Egypt, for example, date to that far back. They date to that far back, at least 2000 BC, right? Now, who among us today can build one of those pyramids? Not even the, the, the geniuses who know how to build skyscrapers in our cities know how to build a pyramid. And they don't know how they built the pyramids. Yeah. By the way, it, it wasn't built by Martians or any space aliens. <laughs> not, not like that. It was, through, it was through human ingenuity back in 2000 BC. By human ingenuity. Okay? Humans did that. And also, if you study the literature, which is available in Sumerian writings, there are many writings left, extant, in Sumerian, in Akkadian, in various other languages, Egyptian. There are various languages that are possible to read and study today. Well, what do we have? And they all, many of them date back about 2000 B.C. and later, such as 1500 B.C. or 1000 B.C., 600 B.C., what about those writings? We have medical texts. We have economic texts. We have astrological texts. We have religious texts, poetic texts. We have lexicons, lexical lists, dictionary lists. We have all of this. And then the writings themselves are very intricate, very difficult to study and to learn. How many of us can do all of that? But they had all that. They had all of that in those times. So they were not... Ignorant and stupid people. Right. And also, they built cities, they built temples, they built towers, they built ships. Yeah. Even as far as 2000 BC, there are records of one nation trading and, with another nation and going from here to there on ship. They had that knowledge. Ships were not invented 81,000 during the time of the Vikings or whatever. No, not like that. They were known and, and built before that. All by God's grace. Common grace. Now let's further see in verses 23 and 24. 23 and 24. We will see here now uh, further evidence of this line of reprobation with Lamech and his uh, wives and what Lamech says. He says to his wives, he's boasting to them, perhaps, perhaps as the commentators say to uh, to terrorize them and to keep them under his authority. 
He says, listen to my, Adah and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wise of Lamech, give heed to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. He kills this young, uh, this boy or man for wounding and striking him. It does not give us the context, he does not give us the context, but he is boasting in the fact that though he wounded me, I killed him. Remember, the Bible teaches just retribution. If somebody steals, and he steals um, something from us, then he should pay back what he stole, a, a proper amount, depending on what the item was. But he should not be put to death for theft, right? And if there is a physical injury from one man to another, the punishment is not capital punishment for the perpetrator. He should be fined or he should have do something to repay for the injury and the cost of recovery, medical costs and all that for the one he injured. That kind of thing needs to happen. But in this case, he went excessive, similar to what Cain did. Cain was excessive and now he is excessive. And he says, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. He is boasting and desirous of God, making provision for him, though he did wrong. And even greater provision than what God gave to Cain. This is the way sinful, rebellious, stubborn human nature is. It will even boast and celebrate and call on God. He's implying God. He doesn't use the name of God explicitly, but he's implying that God will protect him no matter what evil he commits. What does Lamech fail to understand, just like Cain? He forgets to understand that there is a day of judgment, which, which will be a day of reckoning for him. And whatever provisions he has now, and however he is protected now, he should not put his trust in that, but understand that there is a day of judgment when God will hold him accountable for all of his sins. He does not understand it. He does not get it at all. By the way, notice that Lamech and even Cain, they knew how to multiply in terms of their intelligence. Remember, Cain was told sevenfold, which means set times seven. So that means Cain understood multiplication. And Lamech understood 77-fold, right? Times 77. He understood multiplication. They were not dumb and stupid and barbaric in their abilities and knowledge. Now, 25 and 26. Verse 25, a replacement for Abel. And Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For, she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. They celebrate the coming of Seth. Seth means he appointed. That's why she says, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. By the time that Cain manifested his unbelief, they understood that the promise would not be fulfilled in Cain. The promise of the coming Messiah would not be fulfilled in Cain. They hoped it would be Abel. But their hopes were dashed to pieces when Abel was murdered. Right. So who would replace Abel so that the Messianic line would come? And they hope that it is in Seth. And indeed we know the rest of the Bible that it was in Seth. Right. Because Genesis 5, which traces the lineage from Adam to Noah... 
And then by Genesis 6 to 9, the line of Cain is completely wiped away, right? So the line of Noah remains, and Jesus comes from that line, from Noah to Abraham, from Abraham to Isaac and Jacob, and from Jacob to Judah, Judah to David, and the descendants of David onward. We can see this traced in Matthew 1 and in Luke chapter 3. Matthew 1 and Luke 3, this lineage from Adam, Seth, Enosh, all the way to Christ. Verse 26. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. They began to call upon the name of the Lord. Then or at that time, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. What does this phrase mean? To call upon the name of the Lord. Who were they calling upon? It says the Lord, but we still need to know who is this Lord. Is this Lord vague? Is it kept undefined? Or is it specific? Is this Lord a specific Lord? A specific person? Who did they call upon? This phrase, to call upon the name of the Lord, uh, repeats in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham does so, as it says in Genesis 12, verse 8. He built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Genesis 12, verse 8. As well, it says in Genesis 21, 33. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. The everlasting God. Joel chapter 2, Joel chapter 2 and verse 32. This is a familiar passage, but at the end of it, we notice what it says. Joel 2.32 says, There will be those who escape as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. And at the beginning, and it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Delivered or saved. Saved from what? Right. And these people who are saved are the survivors or the, rem or the remnant whom the Lord calls. This calling whom the Lord calls is an effectual call. It accomplishes the purpose for which God sent out that call. They effectually, definitely come to believe because God has called them to believe. But what do they do? They call on the name of the Lord. Who did they call upon? Let's also see, before we answer the question, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11. Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 to 14. Moses is preaching here. For this commandment, which I command you today, is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. It's very near in your mouth and in your heart. Don't say, we, we do not know it. 
it's out of reach. We have to go here or there and, and take uh, great strides to find out this word and to know this word. No, it's right here. And later in Deuteronomy 30, he says, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. He's setting life and death before them. Well, still, what do we need to believe or who do we need to believe in order to be delivered or saved? As they did in Genesis 4.26. Isaiah says, Isaiah 28.16. Isaiah 28.16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disappointed or disturbed. He who believes in it. The NASB says it because it is continuing the analogy of the stone. A stone is an it. But he's not talking about a literal stone. How could you believe in a literal stone? That's impossible. He must be talking about this stone in a spiritual and metaphorical sense. So who is this stone that we must put our faith in? It has to be Christ. It has to be Jesus Christ. Romans 10. Romans 10, 6 to 13 will confirm the interpretation of these verses. Romans 10, 6 to 13. Remember, apostolic interpretation of the Old Testament is supreme. It's accurate and authoritative. Right. Romans 10, 6. But the righteousness based on faith speaks thus. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching. Think for a minute. Which we are preaching. What Paul preaches is the word of faith, and he just quoted Deuteronomy 30. What does that faith consist of? Verse 9. He says, That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He identifies from these passages which we have read in the Old Testament that is, Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 14, Isaiah 28, 16, and Joel 2, 32. And Joel is alluding to Genesis 4, 26, to call upon the name of the Lord. That's what he's doing. Now, if that's what he's doing, Paul says they called upon the name of Christ, right. Christ Jesus, to be saved which confirms that there is one way of salvation from Genesis to Revelation. Right. One way of salvation. Not 
Two ways, not three ways, not 3,000 ways, only one way of salvation. The Old Testament saints look forward to the coming of Christ to believe in Him, Christ our Messiah. Those two words mean the same thing. Anointed one, Christ anointed one, or Messiah anointed one. They believed in Him for their salvation and forgiveness of sins. And we look back to the coming of Christ that He actually accomplished it 2,000 years ago. They look forward and we look backward to the same one true gospel. Let's confirm that from reading Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3. I grant that in Galatians 3, he does not go all the way back to the time of Adam and Eve, the time of Seth and Enosh. He does not go that far back, but he does go as far back as Abraham. Right? He goes that far back, and that should be sufficient for us to believe that Abraham believed in Christ, the gospel of Christ, because Abraham precedes Moses. He precedes Moses chronologically. Abraham is in Genesis, Moses is in Exodus, right? And Abraham lived in 2000 B.C., and Moses in 1500 B.C. They have a separation of 500 years. So, with that in mind, Galatians 3, verse 6. Galatians 3, 6. Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham. And the scripture for, scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The blessing of Abraham to the Gentiles. Whatever the Gentiles hear, and Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles, what did they hear? They heard the gospel. Verse 8. They heard the gospel, but who heard the gospel before the Gentiles did? According to verse 8, Abraham did. It says, the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, Abraham was preached the gospel. He heard the gospel and believed it. And he had the Spirit, the blessing of the Holy Spirit, indwelling him. And the same thing that Abraham believed, and the same blessing of the Holy Spirit that he had, now the Gentiles experience. Because nobody is saved by their works, we're all under a curse, whether before the law of Moses or after the law of Moses or even during the law of Moses. That's the point of the apostle. No one can live up to the expectations of the law. So we live by faith. So Abraham believed the gospel, which is belief in the death and resurrection of Christ. Not a different gospel. After all, that's what Galatians is all about. The moment we detract and, and compromise the one true gospel, adding anything, even a little bit, 
or even taking away from it, then that is a false gospel. So one true gospel. Abraham believed in it. Therefore, it is not a stretch to say that Adam and Eve, Abel and Enosh and Seth and the, and the rest, Noah, all the way leading up to Abraham, that they also believed in this one true gospel. Now, what I just said is not just my interpretation, and I didn't invent it. I did read the Bible and, and think that there must be only one gospel. I did read that. But coming to a fuller understanding of this, I came to it because I read the church fathers, the early church fathers, such as Justin, Justin of Samaria, he called Justin, of, Justin Martyr. He wrote a dialogue with Trypho, a Jew, in about A.D. 150. He wrote that, and there he believed the same thing. Eventually, in my Christian journey, when I read that, I saw, okay, he's saying the same thing. Then I read Irenaeus of Lyon, Irenaeus, who wrote a book called Against Heresies, also written in the 2nd century, later in the 2nd century, about A.D. 180 or 200, about that time. He wrote that, and he's saying the same thing. And he's preaching the one true gospel against all the heresies of his day. And there are other church fathers who believe the same. One gospel in the Old Testament to New Testament. The Old Testament patriarchs, all the saints, believed in this gospel. Then the gospel was accomplished by the coming of Christ. And now we preach that it has been accomplished. The prophets predicted it. The apostles announced it. Okay? That's, that's the way they took it. And then, in the Reformation period, in the 1500s and onwards... Those who hold to reformational doctrine, they believe the same thing. Martin Luther believed like that. John Calvin believed like that. John Gill, later Baptist in the 1700s, he believed that. And let me just give you a, a brief excerpt from John Gill. From this verse, Genesis 4:26, he says, that is, to call upon God in the name of the Messiah the mediator between God and man. The mediator between God and man. So they approach God in the name of Christ. He is the only mediator and the only way of salvation. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.